0: two-team town. as, as you, uh, did you Did you grow up in the Bay Area, I guess I should start by asking, or did you move there
1: at some oh, point? Oh, no. I, I was born in LA, but at two, I moved to
0: the Bay Area, and I've been here ever since. Okay, so essentially raised in the Bay Area. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. So uh, Chicago, obviously, is is the two-team baseball market, and I've lived in New York City, also the, the biggest two-team baseball market. And the way that those two cities work uh, baseball-wise, the, the one I'm most used to is here, Where the Cubs get all the publicity and the White Sox, for most of my life, really hated that. Uh, And is that, I mean, you explained to me over Twitter how the Giants and the A's work, especially in terms of one of the sports radio stations on there. Is that a similar vibe where the Giants are kind of the nationally known team and the team that's had all the World Series success over the past decade? Is there kind of a building resentment among A's fans or is there kind of a lingering one or does that work differently out in the Bay area?
1: Um, I think for a lot of people, there's definitely a giants versus A's mentality. I mean, we have the Bay bridge series, um, obviously the 89 world series where we really, really go back. Um, but so there are the people that have the hat with the giants and A's on the same hat split in the middle. Um, but for the most part Giants fans are Giants fans and because of their recent success there're going to be a lot of assholes in that group <laughs> naturally um but I mean you go back to like I said the 80s the late 80s for the A's um, the early 2000s they've had some success um but overall like I was explaining with Arts, the the big bay area sports station they're the ones that get all the attention mm-hmm um, so giants are definitely
0: talked about a lot. Um, and you, you told me that the A's in response to KNBR kind of almost shutting them out completely have started using their radio broadcast as you called it, uh, the A's cast almost that it's, it's uploaded as a podcast online.
1: Oh yeah. So it, and I'm still just trying to figure it out myself, but about two or three weeks ago, the Oakland A's came out with they call it the A's cast. They're not going to be on um, terrestrial radio. They're not going to have an over-the-air deal. They are going to have an app that you download and you listen on the app. Hmm. And then they'll also have some podcast features that will show up still on like Apple Podcasts and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's all on their A's cast app.
0: That's kind of fascinating because in a way, it's a baseball team actually trying to get out ahead of where they think the media industry might be moving as opposed Mm -hmm. to most teams kind of signing long-term contracts with old media like tv or cable or radio and just raking in the money and writing them out and blacking out fans in order to fulfill those contracts so on the one hand that's intriguing and if, if it succeeds the a's will clearly be the first team that kind of broke new ground. I will tell you, it reminds me of, of two very different things, one of which is amusing, one of which decidedly not. Uh, the first is that uh, when you first told me about the A's kind of saying the hell with KNBR and starting their to broadcast uh, on their own app and as, as something that you download, uh, it reminded me a little bit of back in the days when the Chicago Tribune owned the Cubs. This is 100% true. Jerry Reinsdorf, the White Sox owner, apparently was known for measuring the column inches that the Tribune <laughs> devoted to the Cubs versus the White Sox and contacting them every single day when he found a discrepancy and letting them know that uh, we can't have this. And and that, more than anything else, kind of defined how the White Sox viewed the Cubs back in the 80s and through most of the mid-90s. And the other thing it reminds me of it, and this, this actually is kind of a little scary, because do you remember back— in the toward the end of the Montreal Expos existence, like their last couple years under Jeffrey Loria, that uh, they at some point, because they were bad and Jeffrey Loria wasn't spending any money on them. Radio stations in Montreal said, we're not going to pay you to broadcast this shit. And Jeffrey Loria said, okay, well, internet only then. And that was kind of the first sign that there was something really wrong with the Expos and baseball was going to take something drastic to, or was going to undergo drastic actions with that team. And I, I don't think that that's the case with Oakland, but that's kind of the scary thing that your description of ACE cast kind of reminds me of is one of a, a, a very bad decision by one of the worst owners in baseball history. Um,
1: you know, it, it, it honestly sounds a little bit like that. And just to be clear, I mean, this, for most people, they don't really care about Bay area sports radio, but the A's haven't been on KNBR It was, they went on the the sports ravel, and honestly, I don't even listen to that uh, channel, so -hmm. I can't even tell you the name. Um, But they were on that. Then they went on to like a conservative radio station and played there. Um, So they bounced around for years, Mm -hmm. never being able to really find a home like KNBR was for the Giants or is for the Giants. Um, But yeah, the, the A's ownership group is an interesting one. I mean, Lou Wolf used to be the minority owner, but managing partner, and I'm not a big fan of him just because he also is the owner for the San Jose Earthquakes. It's our soccer team. Mm-hmm. And while he is good with making money for his club, he's not good for putting something good on the field.
0: That is yeah. That is 80% of major league owners at this point, and I might be underestimating, honestly.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, uh, Moneyball being a big thing, that was them making money, but not, you know, putting their best effort to, to do well on mm-hmm. the field.
0: Yeah. And, and we're discussing him at a point too, where uh, Moneyball is obviously associated with the great A's teams of the early two thousands and people, when they discuss Moneyball, for some reason don't seem to realize that was the early two thousands and Moneyball is over as an era. Like we are oh, yeah. decades beyond that at this point now. Oh
1: yeah, definitely. And and, Money, and Moneyball, it brought some success, but it didn't bring the ultimate success. Mm-hmm. And right. as, a, as a fan of the A's, it sucked when you have a fan that, or a player that you love, and then eventually he gets traded away because he's too expensive, mm-hmm. which is what happened with the A's for years and years.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that they've conditioned the fans to accept
1: mm-hmm.
0: decades of, you know, Jason Giambi, followed by Miguel Tejada, uh, and followed by, was it Matt Holliday they had for a while and got rid of? In-
1: oh, yeah, and, uh, oh, what's the guy that was in Toronto? Oh,
0: God. Um, uh, oh, uh, Josh Donaldson, yep. Yeah. Um, Perfect example. So,
1: so there's tons of talent that just left. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an A's fan, you you go, OK, well, it's April, so who's going this year? Yeah. Because it, you just knew that's what was going to happen.
0: Right. And, and after a couple decades of that, that you just assume that this is the way the A's do business, despite the fact that—and this is something that uh, I have hammered home on the podcast for, it seems like, a couple months straight now. We just had the Kansas City Royals sell for a billion dollars, which means— no, Oh,
1: yeah, I heard you say that.
0: Yeah, the Oakland A's and everybody can afford to play, pay any player they want. Uh, and before I go off on that rant again, I think it's time to actually open up the podcast. So let me give me one minute to do the propers here. Okay. Uh, you are listening to the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, the baseball podcast on the Outsports Outspe- Out Podcast Network. This is episode number 19 of Three Strikes You're Out, which means, and this is a special one for me, it is... The Joey Votto and/or Tony Gwynn episode—my two favorite non-Cubs of my lifetime—I'm not going to choose either one of them. So, either one you want. It is episode number 19, Votto, Gwynn. They're both phenomenal. The other voice you're hearing on the Through Structure Out podcast is I am Ken Schultz, an Outsports contributor and also contributor to Baseball Prospectus. The other voice, as I was about to say, is a partner on this here Outsports podcast network every Tuesday as the host of the Level Playing Field podcast. Randy Boose is joining me here, and Randy, thank you for stopping by and and for talking A's for uh, about a half hour with me. Appreciate it. Oh yeah, thank you. This has been fun. Yes, it's it's good to have you. And uh, as I say, Randy is heard on this here podcast network every Tuesday. This past week, interviewed Colin Martin, the first MLS player to come out in that league's history, and is currently part of the San Diego Loyal. I believe. Am I remember that right? Yep. Yes, which was a really solid conversation, and then I really want to plug this uh, episode. Was it three weeks ago when you interviewed Billy Bean?
1: Um, I believe it was about three weeks ago. Yes,
0: and not not the Oakland Athletics GM Billy Bean, right. <laughs> Billy Bean the uh, cur- the ex Detroit Tiger, ex Los Angeles Dodger, uh, ex the gay one. Yes, the gay Billy Bean. The the uh, <laughs> drop the e and put it on grinder. I guess. Yeah, uh, there you go. Yes. Uh, and we did that, not talk
1: about grinder, though. I will say that.
0: Yes, yes, that's that's for the follow up, right? Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, and that was one of my favorite conversations that uh, anybody has had on on this this podcast network, because you really got Billy to kind of dive deep into the disappointment that he feels when looking back at his playing career, and I it's it's my theory and this is something that I wrote about in on on Outsports the couple of days after you published the podcast is that because Billy looks at his playing career with so much disappointment mm-hmm. that's driven him to have one of the best post playing careers of any baseball player that I can think of because he is driven to make sure that no player in major league baseball today will ever have to have the experiences he went through as a closeted baseball player in the 90s and trying to hide who he really was did you get that sense in talking to him
1: oh yeah definitely and honestly one of my big takeaways from that episode was him talking about dale scott that umpire who came out as gay towards his end of the career and if they would have only known that they were both gay they could have had a friendship that went beyond baseball. They could have helped each other in so many ways.
0: Yeah. It's, it's astonishing. And, and when you think about the, how many years that they had to cross paths one another, with Dale calling games with Billy at the bat or Billy in the field, and just kind of looking back at that and thinking it's such a, it's an opportunity that has to, at this has to feel missed in terms of making it easier for him as a player. But again, has to feel like so much more of a connection when you, when you think about what their lives are like after coming out and their roles in the game after coming out.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely,
0: yeah, and uh, and that really also defines what the culture of mid nineties baseball had to be for a closeted person, where you had to feel like that you were alone in that game, just despite the fact that you knew statistically you probably weren't, uh, but but to have to, to carry that burden with you, whether it's, you know, coming up to bat at a key moment in the game or having to just kind of put that burden aside and focus on every single pitch as you're trying to call the game behind the plate. The, the fact that either one was able to perform their jobs at all is nothing short of kind of a miracle when you think about it.
1: Oh, definitely. And it's funny because as a baseball fan and and going through the nineties, especially towards the end of the nineties, it had to be talked about in a way, too, because the fans talked about, you know, Brady Anderson, Brady Anderson rumors. Gabe Kapler was a big, um, big fan. People love to talk about Gabe just because the way he looked. Mm-hmm. Um, so sexuality was discussed, but for some reason, the players just couldn't come out.
0: Yeah, probably because and not knowing a thing at all about it, but just from reading about Billy's experience that he's written about and talked about on MLB Network. That whenever sexuality uh, was discussed in the locker room, or if players speculated about Brady Anderson's sexuality, I would guess it would have had to have been in the crudest and most vile terms possible, which also contributes to Billy's fear for for uh, uh, that that kept him in the closet for so long. Um, and uh, do you follow Dale Scott on Twitter at all? By out of curiosity, I, I y- yes, I do. Block- yeah, it's it's. It's a fun account to follow just because to me, I mean, it's, it's entirely him responding to awful politics of the day. And I think of it as that that's a moment where he still gets to turn on the umpire inside of him. And <laughs> like when, you know, uh, Joe Torrey or Bobby Cox would come out of the dugout and get in his face. Like I have to think that Dale Scott on Twitter responding to like Charlie Kirk is the equivalent of that uh, from back in the days when he was an active umpire. And it's, it's entertaining as hell to me.
1: Yeah, you should actually talk to him about coming on your podcast.
0: Um, I have him, yeah. At, at some point, I, I will approach him when uh, when I think that uh, approaching him as, as uh, yeah, I'm just this random, weird stand-up comic who's got a gig at out, sports. Would you want to talk to that? At, uh... He
1: talked to me. I mean, if he's going to talk to me, he talk to you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to hear stories because he goes back probably to— close to my baseball childhood. And uh, so he's probably got stories like confronting Don Zimmer that I want to hear if, if, let alone hearing what it was like to be a closeted umpire for 20, 25 years in the game. I think that'd be great. Yeah. I will definitely reach out to him.
1: Oh yeah. Cause he is. Cause I, when I had him on, we talked for, he's a talker. I will tell you that
0: ex-
1: expect a lot of stories. Um, we talked for about two and a half hours. I had to cut it down a little bit just for, for out sports, but um, he has stories like George Brett, Throwing him out, um, yeah. so many, so many to think of that were just so funny, and he's so good at telling stories.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, that George Brett throwing him out is great. The what, the one, the player who was really good at that uh, was Carlos Zambrano with the Cubs. You remember the uh, the pitcher they had from the mid two thousands till about twenty eleven or twenty twelve, I think. Uh, he was this great, just giant man, 6'5", 250 who pitched on pure white hot rage and off the field was like the biggest teddy bear in every interview, but he would lose it, uh, um, occasionally on the field and occasionally would lose it at the umpire and would get kicked out and would invariably then make the same gesture to try to kick the umpire out of the game. There was one <laughs> famous incident in particular where he did that, kicked the umpire out of the game, picked up the ball at home plate, threw it uh, almost into Trevor Bauer, almost threw it into the center field bleachers from like the pitcher's mound. And then the camera kind of follows him as he goes into the Wrigley field dugout. And as he's about to descend the tunnel toward the locker room, he comes back with bat in hand and there's a Gatorade dispenser right at the edge of the dugout. And he just takes the bat to the Gatorade thing. and does like a Jack Nicholson with a golf club from the mid (laughs) nineties. And it is just the most like insane psychotic breakdown, entertaining as hell to watch, but also, you realize in 20 minutes when he calms down, he's going to be the most contrite and polite person uh, talking to the media about it. It, it's, it's, it was fascinating to watch Carlos. That's another thing I'll ask Dale about, because I'd love to hear if there are any Carlos stories. But but that's not why I called you here, Randy <laughs> Uh Because, yeah, my uh, my invitation to you a couple days ago was uh, for kind of more depressing reasons, unfortunately, but we uh or have to be aware of the fact that as you said to me on, on our Twitter exchange today, that we are living in weird sports times. And as I said to you, you know, it's weird when MLB does the right thing uh, Yeah. because yeah, today, earlier today, uh, Rob Manfred, and I actually got to say, <laughs> well done, sir. Uh, followed the lead of the NBA last night and canceled the rest of spring training and postponed for uh, the opening of the major league season this year for at least two weeks. And as sad as that is that, you know, uh, we're kind of a little more housebound just as a species right now, and we need anything we can to get us through this. You can't really be playing baseball when uh, COVID-19 is running through the nation. And I, I originally reached out to you because San Francisco, Oakland, and the Bay Area were one of the first regions that got this right And uh, so I guess my first question to you is when you heard uh, the Giants were postponing their first homestand at Oracle Park and then the A's followed suit, what were your thoughts hearing that?
1: Um, I wasn't too surprised just because a lot of the cities themselves were doing things. So like Santa Clara County, which is where the San Jose Sharks are from or where they play, um, they had already said that no organization, no groups, over a thousand people can be together. Um, San Francisco did the same thing, I think with less people, uh, governor, the governor, Gavin Newsom also came out and said, it's recommended that, you know, 200 or so is the max that we can do. So in California, we're already ready for, for a lot of these sports things to, um, we thought they would be just empty stadiums, playing games. Obviously the leagues have come in and, and stepped it up more and just said, no. Um, I think it's easier when it's multiple organizations. I mean, NBA starting at NFL, obviously, is months, months out. And NHL canceled. So many organizations are doing it. I mean, we have the March Madness canceled now. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's easy to accept now just because that's what we have to do. Right. I mean, while the average, the common flu has more deaths, you can see where this has gone in China. You can see where it's gone in Italy. Um, so we know that it can go a lot worse. And I think setting these boundaries now and canceling things while we still can and in good, we're still mostly in good health is the smart thing to do.
0: Yeah, it's realizing that we can still. Prevent a China or prevent an Italy, probably, hopefully. And, you know, I'm certainly the last thing from a medical expert. I spent the past 20 years, a lot of it, uh, telling jokes to drunks in smoke filled bars. So, <laughs> you probably don't want to come to me for medical recommendations. But just in terms of if, if that's what it takes to keep us from getting to the point where what we're reading about from Italy and China is happening then, yeah, I am okay with beginning the Major League season in May or even later than that, if necessary, because you know, the first concern is obviously you want people around to enjoy sports and enjoy them without having that weight on their minds that is this contributing to something that could be disaster down the road. If it were up to you, uh, would you take seeing teams play games in empty, empty stadiums and empty ballparks would that be an acceptable thing for you to start a season with?
1: Um, I think it depends on the sport. I mean, so much of a sport is the noise in the background, the crowd cheering, the, the TV shots of the fans. So it would be different. I mean, not to pick on the XFL, but (laughs) some of these XFL games, it's sort of like that where there's not a lot of attendance. Mm -hmm. Um, so, And you're missing out on something. So I don't – if you have to, you have to. But I think just waiting to start fully a little bit later – and let's be real with baseball. Baseball, 162 games, is a lot of games anyway. So if we have to get rid of 10 to 15, for me, it's not going to be that big of a deal.
0: Yeah, and it's not like – I mean, I'm as big a baseball fan as you'll find. And there are definitely days usually after the Cubs have lost like five in a row where I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm just going to take a day here and and just not put myself through it. Uh, So, yeah. And and baseball has gone through as as recently as 1995. Uh, They played a shortened season and didn't have any ill effect from it. That was the year where the strike ended up lasting until uh, the beginning of April And then it was resolved and they had like a quick two or three weeks of spring training and ended up playing, I want to say 144 games that year. Mm -hmm. And no one thought that, you know, this is, you know, no one felt that they were missing out on anything. And no one thinks of that year's Braves as, you know, as lesser than champions because they played a shortened season. And in fact, that year is still celebrated in Atlanta, as far as I know, because it was the only world championship of that Braves dynasty. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think as a baseball fan, that even if they shorten it to a, 120 or even 100 games this year, everyone would understand, and that that's still a big enough sample size where you would be finding out who the best teams in the game are. Uh, one mm-hmm. of them, by the way is going to be your Oakland Athletics. I'm about 90 percent sure. So
1: yeah, it's looking good so far. Yeah, and, and honestly, it's better to do at the beginning. Then at the end, what you're seeing then NBA and NHL, yeah. because those two leagues are going to have a real problem mm-hmm. because yeah. they can't – the games they have to cancel would be the playoffs. But that's where the owners make their money, so they're not going to do that. So now you're looking at seasons that could potentially go into July, August if we have a long delay.
0: Right, and, and you're also talking about with the NBA and NHL, this big break in between the enforced end of a regular season and then the beginning of the most important games of the year. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure the vast, vast majority, if not all basketball and hockey players are going to be working to stay in shape for the most important games. But it's still a time where you're not playing games on the regular. And then all of a sudden you're playing these intense, hyper-competitive contests. And I kind of wonder if some of that is going to look like what would happen if, like, John Kruk suddenly put skates on and laced up, laced him up for the Sharks, <laughs> which would be Entertaining in and of itself, but also it's not the product you want to put out there. But again, the circumstances of the moment are much more important, and that if that's what you got to do, you got to do. And as you say, yeah, baseball. You'll have it. it, To me, it'll be interesting seeing how some of the pitchers are. I mean, all the pitchers, the starters, are ramping up for an opening day uh, on the last week of March and getting their arms ready to go for eighty to one hundred pitches at that point. And now if they're going to have to back off that, or if there's a way to kind of keep their arms in at least 60 to 70 pitch shape until they can start it up again. I, I really don't know uh, if that's going to be the case, but that's, that's going to be the thing to watch when baseball starts up again to me is how quickly starters can kind of get to the point where they can still eat up like a, a solid five innings for you.
1: Well, and even for, if you think of catchers too, cause they don't start every game cause they need some rest mm-hmm. for, for most teams anyways. Yeah. Um, it's going to affect the catchers as well because they they already play like the A's pit the A's catchers they're expecting him to play about play about 120 mm-hmm. game 120 games a season so if we go down to 140 obviously he's going to maybe drop to under 100 games for the year depending on how long the season is
0: yeah um, and and that's also I mean it's an endurance test uh, when you're trying to build up your catching stamina for an entire season too and and that's something that's also going to be interrupted and that's that's a very Interesting thing to look at and uh, kind of uh, focusing on the Cubs for just a brief second here. That makes me think that that might be a small hidden advantage the Cubs have because they're one of the few teams in baseball that has two legit starting catchers in Wilson Contreras and Victor Caratini who are both at least offensively good to an offensive force and defensively uh, have different strengths, but are both the kind that you'd be fine with starting over the majority of a season. So the Cubs might be in a position where if they have to split more time between the two of them, they'd be much better off than about any other team in baseball I can think of. So I I like this theory a lot is what I'm saying. (laughs)
1: Like I I said, I'm a fan of a shorter baseball season. So
0: (laughs) yeah, I think, I think it would work out well. Yeah. And, uh, and your Oakland athletics, they are going to be probably the team whenever baseball starts up again, that, a majority of people across the country are going to be looking at as you are our, our helpless Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope because <laughs> you can they are the closest to preventing another soul sucking Houston Astros division championship and probably run through the playoffs again.
1: Yeah, the AL West this year is actually going to be really exciting, um, mm-hmm. not only for stories on the field, but off um, Anytime the Houston Astros come to town for whatever team they're playing. The fan reaction is going to be intense, um, especially for AOS rivals. Um, obviously, we have a, a pitcher on the A's that was part of the, the Houston Astros. Um, and it's been one of the big topics this um, spring training is just him and telling the story of the cheating scandals and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's definitely going to be a fun year once the season does start.
0: Yeah. How have uh, the Oakland fans reacted to Mike fires? Have they adopted him as like, you are not just the guy who exposed this for everyone in baseball to find out what had been going on, but now you are our hero. Cause I remember seeing him just walking into spring training for the first time and seeing fans lined up and just applauding his appearance.
1: You know, this year, the A's, like we talked about before with the A's, usually they trade away some of their their top players or some of their people just go. So every year it's a a thing where you're really trying to find out who's going to make the roster. This season, we come into the season with a pretty solid team Um, and him being a perfect example of someone helping with our pitchers. Um, Our our pitchers we have to start the season are going to be pretty good. Um, So he's been accepted and he's loved. And, um, like I said, on the A's cast podcast, they do. And the other podcasts I listen to, he's getting talked about a lot, not only because of his involvement with that, but because of what he's going to be able to do on the field.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, pitched a no hitter last year against my guy, Joey Votto in the Reds. I remember that quite well. And he's, he's the pitcher because even in back in his earliest days with the Brewers, He was somebody that good Cubs hitters couldn't solve. And it was really weird to watch him pitch because he really only hits about like 92, I want to say, at his best with a fastball. But because he pitches consistently up in the zone, it always plays much harder to hit than it looks. And just seeing him be able to work with that, it's weird to think of 92 as like a limitation, but in modern baseball, it kind of is. And to see him stay effective for this long and pitch a couple no-hitters in his career with that kind of fastball, it, it's fascinating just from a, a fan-of-the-game standpoint to watch, let alone the fact that now he is kind of historically important as, as mm-hmm. a pitcher for a couple of years. And, and having somebody who kind of knows how to pitch like that lead a young A's pitching staff and kind of show everybody that this is what you can do, even if, even if you don't have – 96, 97 consistently is probably something that's going to help just trickle down through the entire rotation, you would think.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: Yeah. Um, And uh, getting back to going back, uh, touching back briefly to what you mentioned earlier about uh, fans getting on Houston when they come to town. And I want to throw this at you that I think Oakland A's fans just as a group underrated in terms of just a fun group of fans to watch. That uh, even though they, the A's never really draw consistently more than 20,000 a game, uh, turning on Oakland A's games and just seeing the fact that everybody who goes to the Coliseum is so into it is really invigorating. And it, to me, it's it's like watching, especially those fans in right and left field that bring the drums and wave the flags and have the different chants for every player. Like that's how you fan. That's how you do it if if you're going to a ball game. And I really wish like Oakland A's as a fan base could catch on more throughout baseball. It's like this is how you have fun when you go to a baseball game. Have you ever sat in right field with that group when you go to the Coliseum?
1: No, usually I sit more towards the infield. Mm. Um, but when you are in the stadium just the noise that they they produce it's pretty exciting. I mean even though, you know, A's fans we're an odd bunch. We've put up with a lot. Um, Oakland Alameda Coliseum or whatever they call it now. with the, whatever. I don't think they have a sponsor right now. Yeah. But um, it used to be a, a decent stadium. The outfield was nice. Um, then the Raiders come back into town and they build Mount Davis, which mm-hmm. is that big eyesore in, in the outfield. Um, so even – even though we sell you know, 20,000 seats or whatever it is, and the A's ownership group, I have to give them credit for trying new things um, with their membership plans that they have instead of season tickets and stuff like that. It's just they're trying to be good, and the president, um, Dave Cavall, who used to be the president for the Earthquakes when they built their stadium, um, he's with the A's now, and I give him credit for being so open and out there. Like on Twitter, he's usually after every game responding to, to fans. If, if they have complaints about what happened, you know, even if it's like food or something like that, Dave Cavall, he actually responds to people and he cares. So I think that's helping these fans. Hmm. Um, but to get back to your question, (laughs) I sort of got sidetracked. Okay. Um, We've had to deal with a lot of crap for a long time. Yes. You know, um, we've we've already mentioned it in the podcast. We finally feel at least for me and I think for a lot of people, we finally feel like we're on the track to actually build and sustain a talented team. Mm-hmm. Whether it's for the new stadium they want to build at Jack London Square in downtown Oakland by the port. Looks or why? The yeah, beautiful stadium and then what they want to do with the existing facility. Um, because you know, last year Oakland had three teams. This year they have one, and it's mm-hmm. the A's. Yeah. Um and then obviously there's been rumors too that the whole Las Vegas spring training game is where a tryout to get to see if you know the Raiders work out, maybe the A's move eventually too if they don't get something done in Oakland. Um but we put up with a lot and the fans that we have are strong. The Giants, with their weakness they have, we have a lot of people that sort of bounce back and forth, I think. And I think you will see the fan base grow. And I think that energy, as long as we're able to keep it, and I think we will, we'll do all right.
0: Yeah. That that, that strength really comes across whenever I see an Oakland A's game on TV, as I say, that uh, just just hearing that. It, it, it almost It's the closest baseball comes to having a soccer cheering section, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I wonder if you you mentioned, I I didn't know that uh, the team president goes on Twitter to answer fans' questions after every game. Has he ever gotten, like, a player tweet at him and say, uh, hey, there's sewage in the dugout? Uh,
1: No. Okay. But obviously we have that problem at the Oakland Coliseum. (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah, That's something that you usually don't find at, say, your Cannon Yards or your PNC Park. So it, it is a unique feature, I guess, of the Coliseum. Oh yeah. It's a garbage
1: stadium. Yeah. I mean, we definitely have to get something new. The, yeah. the players though, are awesome that we have. Um, they've talked about it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's our home. Right. So Oh yeah.
0: And it's, it's kind of weird that, uh, do you know Len Casper, the Cubs TV play-by-play guy? I think I've heard of yeah, him. Yeah. He's expressed every time the Cubs play Oakland in interleague uh, and off and several times on Twitter as well, that he has a bizarre love for the Coliseum because it is so at at, at this point in the game, it is so unique and there, there is no other park that's anything like it that he likes it as that, that remnant of what 1960s and 1970s baseball used to look like because it is itself and it doesn't pretend to be anything else. And, you know, I, I I certainly understand when, when you don't have to see that for 81 games a year, that's probably more charming, but, but I can kind of see his point with that, honestly.
1: Oh yeah. I, I get that. I mean, We've had a lot of history there. We've had a lot of success. I mean. um,
0: One four World Series there. Yeah. So it'll.
1: The history is good. Yeah. I think we're coming to another point where we're going to have some. A few good years, too. Absolutely. Um, But when time comes for that to be knocked down and we get a new one for the A's, that'll be more exciting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And then, as I say, I really hope that that new one gets built because just from the way that they're looking like it designs it, I've never seen a ballpark look anything close to that. And I, I will be excited to see a game in it at some point. Um, and to be get excited about this current team, and we got to transition to a couple of the players that have got it to, to thrill you. So the two Matt, Matt Chapman Matt Olson, mm-hmm. uh, coming from, again, referencing the, the stereotype of the Oakland A's from the Moneyball era, uh, because that's what Michael Lewis wrote about in the book, was sacrificing defense in order to find those market inefficiencies in offense, which back in the day was OBP before everybody knew about it. And so you had, you know, the plotting Giambi's or Tejada, who is not, not a great shortstop, but could just right. the hell out of the ball. And is it to you as an A's fan, is it a weird transition to kind of go from that, that stereotype to now see your team being led offensively by two guys who cannot just rake and cannot just hit home runs, but are good at first base on defense. And then the best third baseman outside of Colorado in the game, and maybe some some years better than Arenado uh, on defense with Chapman at third. You know,
1: it's not weird because it's it's exciting, especially for Matt Olson. Matt Olson is one of the sweetest guys. Like, if you ever hear stories about him, The Athletic, I think, came out with an article um, about how he has this friendship with an autistic kid, and he's had it since he was a teen. You just hear these stories about these players, and and I'm not like a numbers guy. I can't quote stats, but the stories that these that are told about these players, um, with Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, I mean, it's really, you want to like for me, I want to be a fan of the player and the person, mm-hmm. and the A's team that we have now. It seems like we really have that. It we can we don't have to ignore off the field stuff. We can actually celebrate and with our team i mean it's exciting matt Olson had what 36 home runs and he missed yeah. some games at the beginning of the year because he had a bone broken in his hand i mean we have a pretty good team i mean we had 97 wins last year 96 or ninety-seven. Mm-hmm. we made the one game wild card but we want more
0: yeah <laughs> and as, as you should and and that's uh, the one of my least favorite things about the one game wild card, which just in general, I can't stand is because a 97 win team. And all of a sudden after one game where your starting pitcher doesn't have it and you give up a couple early home runs, your season's done. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of horseshit. And that's, that's baseball trying to be the NFL and not accepting the fact that you're just, you're not football and it's okay. Yeah. Uh, And to your point about uh, Matt Olson, and, and Chapman, and I can say this, having rooted for this core group of Cubs, that even though they've employed a couple of real scumbags like Addison Russell over the past couple of years, nonetheless, it doesn't overshadow the fact that this is, by and large, a group that has not just been the best Cubs team of all of our lifetimes, but also just one that puts a smile on your face in so many mm-hmm. ways. like. Anthony Rizzo uh, is not just, you know, the de facto captain of the team and one of its best offensive players and the symbol of Cubs baseball. But he's also someone that in my world redeems the entirety of Twitter, which, (laughs) you know, Twitter, like the Twitter is checking on most days is like. 90% Ninety percent of here's something horrible that Trump did, and here's some awful response to it, and this is why we should all be mad, justifiably. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the time, my timeline, like, oh, and Anthony Russo is visiting sick kids in the hospital again. Yeah, right? I just feel so much better seeing that. And and yeah, it's when you get a chance to root for guys who are not just awesome in the field, but but are that kind of guy away from it. It it really makes the team feel special and it makes you feel better for being connected to it in that way.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why the A's were successful off the field back in the early 2000s. It wasn't just because they were good on the field and they were going to the playoffs and stuff like that, but their personalities were huge. Mm -hmm. The, the A's marketing staff did a brilliant job getting their personalities out and it drew people in who might not normally go to baseball.
0: Yeah, and Giambi was a fun guy. Like, as as much as people gave him shit when he got busted for steroids, he was still you know someone who had a thing to say. Uh, was always a fun interview and seemed like that the kind of guy that everybody in baseball just wanted to hang with. And and yeah, that's that's also a personality type that's really fun to root for too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, and your other big star going into this year, and this one is uh, I, I'm curious to know. Your thoughts on Marcus Simeon, because uh and I know you said you were not a big stats guy, but I looked them up uh last night I was as I was putting the outline together, and I knew that last year was kind of an outlier year for him. I didn't remember exactly how much of an outlier it was. That up until 2019, Marcus Simeon, every single year, was a below average offensive player by just about any metric that's out there. And then last year, not just above average for the first time in his career, but like one of the very top offensive players in the game. Uh, and to the point where he was third in league MVP voting. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can count on that as a repeat performance this year, but do you think that there's a middle ground maybe that he'll be able to find that still be valuable for the A's? Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, like
1: you said, it, it was probably his career year that he had last year. So even if he gets to the half of that though, With everyone else around him, we still have a good team. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think to expect that much from him, though, would be would be
0: crazy. Mm -hmm. Very much so. I mean, that that defines career year, just looking at a stat line in in every conceivable way. But but yeah, it's also the Oakland seems like the kind of team and they have a deep enough lineup at this point now where you don't have to have a career year and still be a valuable contributor to the team? Oh, definitely.
1: I think really the only weakness we have right now is second base, and we're still trying to figure out who the starter is going to be for that. But mm-hmm. if you look around you, though, I mean, solid catching, solid infield, outfield's going to be good. Pitching staff is going to be solid. I mean, it really is an exciting year for the A's baseball once it finally gets started.
0: Right, right. And, uh, and so I guess in the context of all this, then, uh, let me ask you this, what would you give to see just one playoff series win at this point from this group?
1: Well, you know, I think we're going to see it this year. I mean, I don't, I don't have to, I don't, I don't have to dream. (laughs) It's actually like an expectation almost that we're going to see a
0: series win. And isn't that Um, a great feeling that to to realize that, yeah, this is most likely going to happen.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, to go into the season and actually go, you know what? Ace fans, we got it pretty good right now. We can actually expect some good things. We need to stop with slow starts. If we get yeah. past the slow start, um, like we usually have, mm-hmm. we will be in a lot better position come the summer when things really start to pick up for us usually.
0: yeah, um, You're right, That does seem to be a hallmark of, of Billy Bean era A's teams. Uh, slow start, but also then the late season charge that just doesn't stop. Yeah, um, Whether it was the 20 wins in a row from 2002 or that year where they just kind of, I think it was 2013 or 14, where they snuck up on the Rangers and then in that last week just ran the hell right past them in that last series. Yeah, definitely. And, and so they, they've definitely got the end of the season figured out. But uh, has anyone ever floated theories as to why they start so slow?
1: Um, I don't think so. I mean... I, I don't know why. I think, it, like I said, it, it usually probably goes back to their roster not being set. They're not being able to ex- to expect the people they have starting to to really be ready to go completely because we're always bouncing back, back and forth between who's going to start and who's not. Um, but like I said, with this year's roster being set early and only the second baseman being the part where we're really having an issue – is deciding who's going to be the starter. I think we're going to, we'll avoid that. And then our pitching. I mean, I look back to the the early two thousands when we had um, Hudson Zito and Mulder. Um, I think we're going to be better than that this time with pitching. I think we have those guys that Mm -hmm. that'll get us through. Even if we do have some, some slow offensive games, we'll have some pitching that can, can reduce runs.
0: Yeah. Do you see Sean Maniah taking the step up this year?
1: Um, I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I honestly see, don't know. Seized for a couple of years at this point, and and he was the starter in the one game playoff last year. So the talent is there, but it, it would seem like that if if the starting pitching staff was going to take that next step, that you'd think it will that he's going to be one of those guys that does it.
1: Yeah, and maybe not being the number one or number two, if he isn't, can help him with reducing stress and pressure and maybe mm-hmm. that could help him out a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that sometimes does. It, it's some guys that just are, know that they've got the talent, but just want to know that they don't have to carry it all by themselves. And that, yeah.
1: Well, I think you look at Barry Zito who, mm-hmm. um, and this might be totally crazy, but when he was with the A's, he was like the third, third starter. Absolutely. Um, but when he goes to the giants and he has that huge contract, he mm-hmm. just choked and he, didn't do what the team needed him to do. And I think that pressure is what held him back. Yeah. Well, and, and plus he was an oddball. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. And, and the A's also got rid of, of him at pretty much the, the right, right time. So how much they were going to have to pay him. Uh, it's yeah, yeah that's that absolutely. That's, that makes a whole lot of sense. And it's, it's a pretty good comp, uh, it's especially, you know, when you looked at in terms of the natural gifts, you had Hudson and Mulder, had far and away the most stuff, and Zito had with the curveball something that neither of them had. But if uh, if his uh, fastball and his command started to fade, as they did in his Giants years, that curveball was, as you saw, not nearly as useful. Oh uh, yeah, in the long run for him. Uh, So before we get to our last topic here on the podcast, let me do a quick little promo for what we got going up uh, tomorrow here on the Outsports Podcast Network, is the Sports Kiki with Alex Reamer, our deputy managing editor here at Outsports. And Alex didn't uh, send me who he's got on the show this week, but I wanted to do a plug for his show last week, uh, if you look back six days in our Outsports Podcast queue, where Alex discussed the St. Louis Blues uh, hosting a Hockey is for Everyone night on a night where the team was on the road. And all I'll say about that, it was a great episode is that once again, St. Louis is going to St. Louis. (laughs) And we move now uh, to the final topic that I, I wanted to talk about. It's because as we've mentioned several times throughout the podcast, we're not going to be having baseball for a few weeks when we thought we would. So we got to figure out ways to do make do with what, uh, with this extra time on, on our hands And I talked about it a little bit on the podcast last week. It kind of came up organically, but uh, the thought occurred to me, I've read a ton of baseball books in my life, and I kind of want to recommend them to people to help get you through your day. Did you uh, happen to come up uh, with any baseball books that are favorites of yours, Randy?
1: You know what? I really don't. Um, But I will tell you this. I've started to look into it. I listen to a lot of podcasts, um, and one of them I to is The Lead. It's The Athletics, one of their main podcasts. They did a story about two weeks ago about the Negro League Baseball. Um, and they did a brilliant job hooking up the museum, talking about that, plugging that. Um, and they talked about the history and the, the stories behind it. And so I'm actually looking for a good book I can get about the history of the Negro League Baseball. Oh, awesome. um, The way it tied into baseball and music, um, women players, female players, female administrators and managers and owners. I mean, it's just history that needs to be told. So I'm hoping someone could find a book. If one of your followers Mm -hmm. knows of one, I'd love to see it. I will be following for sure.
0: Yes. Uh, There are a couple that spring to mind off the top of my head uh, that aren't histories of the Negro Leagues overall so much, but uh, if you want to get to know a couple of the players and personalities of that era, um, I would say there's one called Satchel by Larry Tai that is a the most in-depth biography of Satchel Page that I've ever read that uh, gives him, it's, it's a solid like 300 page full biography treatment of someone who did a lot of his work in places where people just never saw it, but was amazing. There is also one called uh, The Soul of Baseball by Joe Posnanski, the great Kansas City sports writer uh, who wrote a book. The premise was that he followed Buck O'Neill around for, I want to say, like six months of public engagements during one baseball season. And there's just I mean, when you read about Buck O'Neill, you can't help but feel like what we talked about earlier with Matt Olson or Anthony Rizzo. You just feel good about humanity. And there's just there that permeates this book, that 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 spirit that Buck O'Neill had that, you know, he faced so many obstacles in his life and had gone through so much, but was still so determined to live it to the fullest and to tell the story of the Negro Leagues to anyone who would listen. And that's one that I would really underline recommending solo baseball, it's called. Uh, okay, it's I'll quickly, check it out. Yeah, it's about 150, 200 pages. You'll finish it in like a week. And you'll just feel so much better about humankind in general, which I mean, really is a pretty good goal of, of any, of any work of art, I think. Um, yeah, definitely. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you those two satchel and Sola baseball. And yeah, if any followers know of any Negro leagues books that you'd recommend, definitely drop them up uh, uh, to me on Twitter and uh, at Ken Schultz underscore or, uh, at Randy's Twitter follows, which are at LPF pod as well. Uh, So uh, before we say goodbye, anything else you'd like to plug while I got you here, Randy?
1: Um, Honestly, not to bring it up again, but if you're a baseball fan and you want to hear more about uh, Negro League Baseball from the lead, check out that episode from a couple weeks ago. Things I learned, like I said, female players, female owners. um, The first night game, first game under lights was actually a Negro League Baseball game. It was five years before Major League Baseball did it. I mm-hmm. mean, um, yep. it was one of the owners who bought batteries and lights and did it himself, and they would actually rotate between games. Um, so much, um, so much more needs to be learned about the Negro League baseball yes. uh, league, and and I, that podcast I think is that episode was just really good. So check it out.
0: Yeah, and uh, if you're ever in Kansas City visiting the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, is a must. It Definitely tells the story better than any place I've ever seen. And they also do a good job in Cooperstown too, with uh, with uh, their exhibits on, on the knee Uh So Randy, you have been the soul of this podcast. Thank you very much for stopping by. Oh yeah, thank you for having me, it was fun.